Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Warren. So this week on the podcast, we have John Butler. John is a director and a writer uh, based in Dublin at the moment uh, who is just currently in the editing booth for Papi Chulo, his uh, latest movie. Uh, you'll probably best know John from Handsome Devil, uh, which is kind of a massive sensation. It's out on Netflix now, and it is just such a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Uh, he also made The Stag uh, in 2013 and Your Bad Self with Donald Gleeson. Like, his work has been really, really great, and I, I really love... Um, his voice in the sense of like what he does with comedy and drama and it's something that I strive to do uh, and I was lucky enough to just do literally a day's work with John on, uh, a couple of years ago and um, you know we just uh, have kept in the, the smallest bit of touch since then but he was kind enough to come uh, in and do um, the podcast which I was delighted about so if you are listening John thanks so much for taking the time to do it guys in other news come and check out lyrics at the theatre upstairs we are uh, as you're listening to this we're just coming into our uh, the end of our, our run really we'll have a week left so do come and see us we'd love to have you in and the show's been going so well uh, it's obviously such an undertaking to to do any any fucking piece of theater but especially um you know when you've written it and you're producing it it just kind of is all consuming and um, so to have gotten it up and for it to gotten the response that it has gotten from um you know the general public which is what it's all about has been really great we've also had some really kind reviews um so far uh, which is always nice as well and uh, not that that's why you do it but look there's no denying that they do help um, you know stick on a poster if we want to do the show again and you know sometimes that can get bums and seats and there's been some really lovely quotes about it and stuff um, and all them are online if you want to see any of that stuff it's all on my Twitter at Timor93 but most importantly I'd love to invite you guys to come in and see it tickets are actually flying out the door since they're opening night and since as I said some of them reviews are coming in so like the houses have been really really great which is amazing um, so if you do want to come in and see us book it at theatreupstairs.ie uh, there's also sometimes there are seats on the door sometimes there's not um, but it's cheap as chips it's uh, 12 uh, 50 for an adult 10 euro for a student like it really is um, cheap cheap theatre and uh, I think the quality of it is really really good um, I'm so lucky to have Danielle who was in the podcast last week doing it with me she's just a rock star and Romana uh, done such an amazing job um, you know, whipping it onto the shape and obviously Ellie is our wonderful stage manager and Kieran Moran did a beautiful job of this set and Shane Gill's lights are kind of exceptional so like it's such a good team and I'm so proud of what we made so uh, if you like the podcast I really think you like the play uh, and I hope you come down uh, and see it uh, we're on at 7 o'clock every night we've also got matinees on the Wednesday and the Saturday so come and see us we end on April 14th and it's been an absolute ball so far so I'd love for you guys to see it but enough of all that lads please enjoy the wonderful John Butler playing Personality Bingo with Tom Moore John Butler, ready to play Personality Bingo? Absolutely. All right, sweet. I'm going to give a quick explainer of how it all works. So basically, I have 60 uh, balls in the bingo machine. I've got 60 questions here. I'm going to put 60 minutes on the clock. I've also given you six numbers. Will you do me a favour and read out the six? Numbers are 5, 17, 28, 30, 14 and 50. Excellent. Very good. And I should say that if all six of those numbers do come out, the tables are turned and you get to ask me any question in the whole wide world. I'm ready for that. All right, sweet. Let's do it. Let's just get straight in there. Okay, first one out the gate. We have number 56. Do you have it? I don't. All right, no worries. Number 56. The question is, what's the nicest thing someone has said to you? A guy in... I was working in uh, Greece years ago when I was 18, the summer I left school, sleeping on a roof in an, on an island in Greece. And we, were, and we were hanging out where we ran into this really sketchy Irish guy who was way older than us. He was in his 50s. And he kept on hanging out with us and he was a bit weird and he had a bit of a story for why he wasn't living in Ireland anymore. And uh, he didn't really like me. He liked my friends a lot. But every so often he'd, he'd get drunk and then he'd just look at me as if to say, I'm not sure about you. And he said, he said, <laughs> he didn't say it to me. He said to my friend about me, he said, I don't know if that guy's stupid and he's trying to be clever or if he's clever and trying to be stupid. <laughs> And I always thought that was a great thing to hear about yourself. That's amazing. Yeah, that yeah. I'm a bit unreadable. And yeah. I was like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could really take that one of a number of ways. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's what I like about it, is that he is kind of acknowledging that I'm weird and scary. Yeah. <laughs> but I might be also stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Which is gas. Yeah, what, what do you think, like, I always think, what, what do you think people's first impressions of you are when they meet you? I don't know. I mean, I think it uh, depends if it's the morning or the afternoon. I think if people meet me in the morning, they think I'm uh, dreadful, hateful, swine, because <laughs> I don't like mornings much. Uh, 
it's just after 10 a.m. here, folks. But then I think in the afternoon, the evening, I hope I'm kind of personable enough, but I'm a very narky guy. I can get very narky. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it, it can depend on the time of day, you know. What is, is it just like, is it that simple that it can be just the time of day that will make you narky or are there things that will like ramp that up for you? I'm a little shit. Like I, loud noises, I can get really annoyed about that. Leaf blowers, the, those sweet, uh, street sweeping trucks, if they go by, I get genuinely angry. Sirens. When sirens go by me, I look at, I actually glare at like ambulance drivers yeah. as if to say, "Read, like, is it, are you sure that's necessary?" <laughs> yeah, stop dying in there. Yeah, <laughs> the fire engines, all that stuff. So I, I, I'm very sensitive to loud noises, which makes me sound like a real delicate flower. Uh, but that kind of stuff can put an arc on me that takes a little while to get rid of. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll keep it all very calm in here. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Jesus, <Right>. that noise. <laughs> Right, here we go. Uh, number one. Do you have it? No. All right, no worries. Number one question is, do you believe in ghosts? I do. Do you? I think I do. I believe in some kind of energy, definitely, and I've felt it in rooms and so on. Uh, uh, Rebecca Flanagan, who's a producer that I work with, on the film that I just finished, we were shooting in L.A., and we uh, a lot of the crew were living in one big house uh, by the lake in Silver Lake in L.A., and Rebecca walked into one of the rooms, and she was like, I'm not staying in this room. Uh, bad juju. Not staying in that room. So she moved to another room, and I thought that was very interesting. I perhaps don't have my senses that finely tuned, but I definitely believe in something. Because I do believe in some form of the afterlife, I think, and if you do believe in that, then it's not really such a weird thing to believe in ghosts. I, yeah, I believe in something. I don't know what it is. Um, have you seen that amazing film, uh, A Ghost Story, the yeah. David Lowry film? Yeah. I can't stop thinking about that film. I saw it before making the one I just did, so maybe two and a half months ago I loved it so much and I keep thinking about it so maybe if I don't believe in ghosts I believe in a ghost story by David Lowry yeah that's the film with Casey Affleck under a sheet yes yeah. Uh, so yeah no I, I'm I'm definitely interested in that side of, of things mm. yeah. would you is, is horror like as a genre something that you'd ever look at no isn't that weird it mm. absolutely leaves me cold really? I never look for it yeah like I loved you know Get Out but I don't think that's really a horror but no I don't like that I don't like being scared in that way I'm not a fan of horror, uh, that genre at all, actually. Mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah, I've never really thought of that, but um, I guess it doesn't tickle me the same way it does for other people. Um, but yeah, I think I believe in ghosts. I think I do. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever seen something or felt something the same way Rebecca did that day? I felt, I've definitely felt, uh, I think, things that... You know the way you walk down a certain part of town... I feel it in LA a lot, definitely. I think LA is haunted. Really? I feel it, yes, definitely. And I have to say, the one time I felt it the most was in Berlin. I think Berlin is haunted. I, I, which is to say, I think you can feel the tragedies of the past kind of seeping through the through the rock there. And I think it's deeply atmospheric city and at night. So maybe what I'm saying is that I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe in the weight of human history and believe that that is kind of in the walls and in the air of these places, you know. Mm. So yeah, I definitely felt it in Berlin. Yeah. And LA as a place, it's not somewhere I've been, but it's somewhere like, you know, you hear a lot about, especially if you're interested in the entertainment industry and stuff like that. How do you find it as a place? Like you've obviously lived there on and off. I love it. I really enjoy it, but I, I can appreciate all the bad things people say about it as well. And I think some of the best renderings of stories about the city are come in the form of like things that are scary, like Mulholland Drive is a, wonderful example but also like Brad Easton Ellis and Joan Didion and people like that write about in LA that is kind of empty and vapid and scary and flat and hot and hostile you know so I, and it is all of those things but it's also fascinating I guess it just it has so much history uh, even though the history is you know recent mm. you know and, and it's a place of hope that people move to and then their dreams are either manifested in some way or they or they or they die in their arse and and that creates ghosts and an interesting, an interesting atmosphere. You know, there's all these storybook, uh, like Walt Disney type little cottages and houses that were built for starlets who came to the city in the fifties and to be famous. And you just think about all those lives, and yeah, it's not hard to find the atmosphere. Mm. And, and as somebody goes over and works as a director, they're obviously just in the latest shoot. Like, is it that uh, like caricature image? If I have that, like, it feels as though every waiter is an actor and they're going to slip you a business card and a headshot and a resume and all that mm. sort of stuff. Is How close is that to reality? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the story of the parts of the city that people know the best, you know, West Hollywood and the West Side and Venice and Santa Monica and, you know, so and Studio City, obviously. So, yeah, there's, <clears throat> you know, there's a, a huge uh, tracks of the city where that would be true, but then there are parts of it, 
like we were filming in Pico Rivera and East LA and that's just like a blue collar you know a city where the people work in the ports or they work you know in manufacturing and and you know it's not very showbiz you know um so yeah it's a city with multitudes and interestingly it's one of the only cities where the downtown like the, the business district where the skyscrapers are mm. is really i suppose technically kind of a suburb you know it doesn't feel like the center you know mm. it feels I don't know, slightly removed from the centre in a weird way. So it's a city that I found fascinating, you know. And when you're there, is there a community of like, obviously, you know, the, of like Irish people, you know, who would be, you know, fully based there? And I, I mean, yeah. I suppose like the obvious celebrities and then like, do there, is there a community there that kind of comes together that you would like connect with when you're there? Or Some people, yeah. I don't really, this sounds uh, stupid, but I don't have much time because more often than not when I'm there you're either going to meetings every day or in, in the case of the last trip you're working you're in prep and then you're shooting for mm. 14 hours a day so it's a tricky one but there's some great people out there lovely people like uh, Nicky Murphy who wrote Moon Boy and Adam Fergus who's a lovely actor and a great guy mm. and you know there's a whole uh, little community of friends out there so yeah it's it's nice yeah, nice to yeah, dip yeah. in and out yeah okay great apologies for the noise we'll spin again <laughs> oh <laughs> here we go uh, number 50 do you have it? I do oh excellent well done, that's so, not bad. Yeah, so I mark it off. So one down, what are we, nine one, minutes in? Yeah, okay. yeah, you're doing all right. I'm going to crush this. Uh, number 50, um, oh, what are your dreams for the next five years? My dreams, that's a really good question. Uh, my dreams are always just to get to make another film, I suppose, and to con continue working well. Uh, I only have trite answers to that, I have to say. My, my dreams are to be healthy and alive in five years, and for that to be the case for the people I love. Um I don't know. I don't know what I have beyond that, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't really think in that way, I have to say. I consider my life to be a kind of puzzle that has to be solved from moment to moment. So I don't know if I think in that way. Um, I find that it's easier to kind of just do the thing that's at the end of your nose. Uh, and then when that's done, the next thing will be there and you just solve that and then you move forward. Yeah, I'm quite short-termist in that regard. Mm. Mm. And how does that work then in terms of like, so obviously you're in the editing booth for for current film, like, I don't know, what like 18 months since Handsome Devil yeah, has that. been out. So like, how, how do you, like, so right now, so say the, the, the film that you're editing now is like at the end of your nose, I suppose. Mm. And then, so it's coming towards the end, I suppose mm. the creative process, then there's all the, the next bit but like mm. in terms of the next like thing that you have to write or want to write like how, how does that work are you doing that now or when will you start that well I'm a pretty fast writer in the sense that the next thing I have a couple of other things written that I'd love to get made right. that I would have written uh, at the end of Handsome Devil before going into prep on this and that was the case before Handsome Devil as well mm. so I'm slightly uh, ahead in, in that regard I don't like the idea of uh or, or the, what I would say is maybe this is a piece of advice that I, I would offer to people who are young who are starting out is to have the next thing written before you finish the thing because the pressure is much greater at the end, especially if your thing does well because everybody wants to know what the next thing is. Mm. And if you don't know what the next thing is, it's a lot of pressure to sit down with a blank page and try and write it. Um, but I'm very lucky in the sense that I kind of try to write things that are kind of emotionally autobiographical that have something to say uh, you know in a way that connects with me so I, I you know I so far touch wood I've known what I wanted to write about which mm. is great you know yeah um, and that's what I mean by the end of my nose I think as well is like you use your interests in a way to kind of especially if you're lucky enough to be a writer director you use your own interests and in how you see the world to be the next thing and then that, that'll tell you what you should write mm. you know I think it's harder if you're writing for somebody else or if you're a writer for hire then you have to really you know, try and find maybe ideas. I'm, I'm really, I'm not sure whether I'm explaining it exactly right, but short-termism is definitely where I am as a writer. And, and do you enjoy writing as a process? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Like, I'd have, so, I, you know, I'm not a director, but like if I was to break it down, so it's like the editing is a part of it, the writing is a part of it, then there's the on-set, like, with the directing the crew and the cast, like, a terrible question. Do you have a favourite part of the process? Well, there... It's almost like they're complementary to each other or they offset each other in that you write you're on your own for a long time and you have great control and you write something that you think is great or that you get to a point that you're happy with. And then, so you've been in isolation with that for a long time and then the antidote to that is the extreme, hyper-intense sociability of filmmaking where you're surrounded by people all the time and, and it's intensely collaborative. So mm. 
one is the antidote to the other. So when you finished in that massively collaborative space, then you go into the edit where you're with one other person in a room and you have the feeling of control again. So it's like you, by the time you've gorged on one work method, right. then you're ready for the opposite. Yeah. Even though you're doing the same thing, theoretically, you're making a film. But uh, when you write a script and you get to the end of the script, then the minute you start making it, you're actually ruining it in a way because you, you, a script is a is an ideal like blueprint for a thing, and then the minute you start to film it, you're corrupting it and you're trying to save it. So I don't know. They're funny. Uh, they're so distinct in some ways, and yet they're in pursuit of the same thing. It's it's a weird one, but uh, yeah, you're actually going from one state to the other. Guy on his own to guy with hundreds of other people to guy on his own again. Mm. Yeah, which and like w w then w when you're in that place and there are the hundreds of people and you're you're there doing it. Like for example, in Handsome Devil, like which I said to you, I really I love that. I think Thank you. it's such a brilliant. Cheers. I really I, I sat in the IFI for the first time and I don't normally go to see stuff there. Um, because I have the, the little cinema world, you know, the Cinepass yeah. thing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, but I went to the IFI for whatever reason for that one. And um, and it was just such a... And like, because the cinemas are a bit smaller there and it was mm -hmm. absolutely... It was honestly the... Some of the cinemas aren't really that full, but mm. it was packed. It really oh, was lovely. packed. And it was just... And it's so refreshing to see a, a comedy and it's, you know, something set in Dublin, watching it in Dublin and like... It just, it's an amazing feeling when you're in a cinema and everyone's laughing yeah. together. Like, you forget. That's really powerful. I really, really yeah. remember it. And I was one like curious about in the process of it, speaking about the script as a blueprint, how much of it, like, do you let go in the sense of, like, does it veer ever towards, like, improvisation where you're like, okay, the exact, I, I, this is maybe a question for me coming as a writer because sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, fuck, it's not, it's not working, so we'll just mm. go and, you know, we were talking about, you know, play versus film, whereas, like, you know, at the end of every day in rehearsal, especially for the first two weeks, there were just little bits that weren't working. I was like, right, you know, whether it was get rid of it or cut it or it just needed little tweaks. Mm. How much do you kind of trust, okay, well, this is what the scene needs to achieve. And like, especially if you're working with actors like Andrew Scott and I mean, Fiona and the whole cast were so strong. Mm. Can like, can you or have you in the past just said, right, we know where it needs to go. These lines feel like they're restricting what, what actually needs to happen. Like, get there yourselves. Never get there yourselves, but a certain amount of improv is always interesting and fun to see. And, and also, I would say that collaboration with actors exists beyond the place of improvisation in the sense that, you know, you're working with them to make the thing. So they should, mm. you know, they're already massively invested. So uh, I think sometimes it's framed in the sense of if the, you know, that, that improv is the purest form of collaboration. And I don't think it is. Mm. Like I think, you know, actors and directors work together with a script and executing what's written is so collaborative. But um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day that I think very often if a line is snagging with an actor over and over in rehearsal or in the scene, it has to be acknowledged as being sticky in some way. And very often that's like a canary in the coal mine. It's kind of illustrating to you that it isn't working because of some greater... And I've, I've had instances where I've in, you know insisted on getting that line and then it's, al it's always been lifted from the edit. So I think you have to acknowledge the, the stickiness and, and, and use the... Uh, use the actor's interpretation of it as a way of telling you what is emotionally truest, you know? Um, and I think this is actors who have great verbal facility and don't have any trouble with words, but if they're, if something isn't working, if they keep on switching clauses in a line or it's, uh, a particular word isn't working, it's usually for a reason. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that as a writer. So I also do love improv, but I'm... Uh, my my feeling is always to get the script and then see where you go. But then what militates against that is that very often in film you're shooting your master and then you're over and you're over. So you want to get the scene in your master and then you come into your overs. But like if you want to get off the first close up onto the second one, you need to be giving both sides. And if the schedule starts to play into it and you only have 20 minutes to get off the scene, you have to make sure that you have enough time to give improv on both sides in a way that it'll wed together. So... Yeah. I'm saying that because as an actor, it's always, I think, interesting to know what the constraints are because, you know, you want to be able to, I know on Hollywood comedies, it's like, do it this way, now try it this way, now try it this way. And they're just harvesting yeah. all the responses and then they go into the edit and they choose which one they want. That's if you can shoot a million feet of film, then you can do that. Yeah. But in the low budget, you know, space, it's very often not possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when, like, because I guess that is a luxury of being a writer, director is, as you said, because I had the exact same spirit, like, I... Like, w my experience has been really similar with writing if there's a line and, and the actor keeps saying it wrong and you're like, ah, yeah, there probably is a reason. And, you know, try not to be precious about that sort of stuff at all. And it's so interesting because normally, like, it's better when you get rid of it because, as you yeah. said, it sticks. But um, The line is usually written, like, quote-unquote written. Mm. And that's the problem. is that they're having trouble connecting with the truth of it because it's written. Yeah. And 
if you're if you're interested as a writer or director in pursuing some kind of emotional truth you have to use that as a real red flag and go this is feeling written and as such it has to go yes you know yeah and let the meaning convey itself in another way you know mm. and it, like it's so, so do you have an interest in or, or have you like directing stuff that you don't write I would yeah and I would love to also write something for uh, somebody else to direct yeah but it just hasn't worked that way uh, it will do I'm writing a couple of things for people in America and uh, here so it will happen but it's funny how it goes I get sent things through my agent frequently and read them and uh, it's a big ask for something that somebody else has written to connect with you in a, in a way that's deeper or that will give it greater priority over something that you've been writing yourself Yeah, and that's what it's fighting with so I would love to theoretically yeah yeah, yeah. It would be so. I wonder how it would be. For example, if you were to um, be given someone else's script and told to go and direct it, and then you, you have that experience of like there is a line mm. that isn't working, and it, you know it feels written or whatever it might be, mm. and like how do you navigate that, assuming that the writer isn't on set the whole time, which I know can be a thing sometimes, but also not. No, I think that's a safe assumption to make because I think as the film director, film director, you have to take control of the story and make it your own in a way that where there isn't any argument uh, mm. about whose it is. And that's tough for a film writer. Uh, but I think I think that's a necessary part of the process and some of the directors I admire the very most aren't writers or don't uh, do that. And, and, and they take control of the story so utterly uh, and it has to be that way for all sorts of reasons, least of which is that they're the person who's going to be sitting in the edit for six months. They're the person who's going to be out in the world promoting it. And it is a kind of singular vision in a way, you know. So, But I think then the, the responsibility is to kind of look into the whites of the eyes of the writer before you get into the process and tell them what type of film you think it is and mm. have an open conversation about that. And then if that agreement is strong, then it should be all right, you know? Yeah. But it's a tough one. That's a really tough relationship, I think. And have you ever had the experience of being brought in on someone else's script by like producers, whoever that might be, to, to like work on rewrites mm. or and fixes? Yeah. And how is, how is that? Because obviously, as a writer who's like, as you said, you've started with the blank page before, you know how long it takes to get from blank page to, you know, 120 or whatever you're doing. Mm. And then to take someone else's 120 pages and, you know, obviously in the interest of the piece, try and improve it. Mm. Like how, how do you find that process? I love that. Yeah. I can be quite mechanical as a writer. Like I'm, I'm interested in uh, structure and I, I'm interested in how scenes land and and jokes land if it's comedy but also structurally I'm a big fan of endings you know and, and I think that's part of why I've made films so far pretty much uh, in in the sense that the impulse is to end the story and to get an, an ending work towards an ending land an ending in a way that satisfies uh, some kind of primal desire that an audience has to see things be resolved mm. in, in, in the cinema so I, I'm into that and and as a writer that's when you're hired on to to rewrite somebody else's thing Frequently, you're just being asked to attack it in a mechanical way and mm. kind of maybe step from the script back to an outline and then examine the structure of the thing, like the apparatus, and kind of go, right, okay, it needs this here, and then let's try that, and then go back into the script and rewrite it. So I enjoy that. It's like puzzle puzzle uh, solving, you know, and, and it's fun. Uh, but I will also say that it's uh, less pressured because you haven't you frequently are not credited you know yeah. so you're just doing you're trying to do your best within a, a particular space uh, for the people who've hired you mm. but you're not labouring with the same kind of intensity I don't think you yeah, know? yeah 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 interesting right let's give it a spin okay uh, number 32 do you have it? I don't no worries you see this, I told you that's yeah. what I do I get to talk and you see and waste some time because you've got three numbers at nine minutes now we're at 22 minutes and you're fucked so I am <laughs> um, I have to be honest with that um, tell us uh, about someone who you greatly admire uh, in any world yeah in any world you could edit out this space while I'm thinking yeah no problem uh, there's an amazing documentary about Marsha P. Johnson that I love uh, Marsha P. Johnson was like a trans activist uh on the New York scene, who was one of the key figures at the Stonewall riots, um, which were the riots that triggered the kind of, or that kind of highlighted the uh, LGBT civil rights movement in the US. And she was incredible. Uh, uh, you know, might have been one of the first people to throw the rock that prompted the riot, um, uh, which was caused by obviously the police invading that space. But she kind of, um, the documentary is amazing because she was a, uh, 
these figures are so marginal in life in the 60s and are so marginal now and it takes such courage to be a, a trans uh, person in the world today but um in the 1960s it was such a tough life and i just think to live that honestly about yourself and that bravery bravely was kind of phenomenal that's a great documentary i think it's worth looking uh, at it's on netflix so that's kind of uh, the first person that springs to mind mm. um I admire so much the people who are uh, spearheading the Repeal the Eighth movement. I don't know when this is airing, but uh, I think the courage of those people who put their heads above the parapet and argue for the, the removal of that from the Constitution, I, I think that courage is really commendable. Mm. Um, I'm talking about the women involved, like Tara Flynn and Una Mullally and uh, you know, Alva Smith and people who are just uh, so unafraid and clear about what uh, we need to make this country a more progressive place. So they're kind of uh, foremost in my mind at the moment uh, in work Billy Wilder I always think of uh, the, the kind of master of uh, funny films that move you and have something to say I think The Apartment is one of my favourite films and I, I watch it every so often and I'm reminded of what a great writer and director he was so mm. and uh, Jürgen Klopp um, <laughs> good last night yes uh, what else have I got for you that's it I don't admire anybody else that's it good result last night yes excellent I'm a Spurs fan oh, are you yeah okay big Spurs fan okay good good um, yeah yeah I don't know I, I love I love uh, soccer I've always loved watching soccer uh, even though I, it can be so venal and so crap uh, but I, it, nights like last night were pretty good I had some friends who were there and they said that it was phenomenal amazing yeah, yeah. I, I mean it's uh, it's one of them things I, I always say like I like I'll never be a professional actor just a failed professional footballer like we need do you remember that show yeah. Dream Team on Sky I One do. like that's what I need like to like yeah. please write that like <laughs> in, like uh, you, you know just there needs to be a good because there was also that thing um, I'm from a place called Dunboyne in County Meath yeah. and um, there was a show called On Home Ground yeah don't know, but probably Amy Huberman's uh, screen debut. Yeah, so I believe because I, I, I like IMDb searched it because I'd, I'd love to find it because it was shot in Dunboyne. Yeah, I like our local, like I would have been young, like but our local, like you know, junior B team used to be the extras and they'd you know play like be the extras in the matches and stuff like that. Um, apparently, my so. brother in law coaches in uh, he lives in Rattoads. Oh, no way, he coaches down there. Yeah, okay, what's his name? Paul Everard. Oh, yeah, I know a lot Shout of out to Paul. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, need, we need like a good, like a good. Soccer, maybe that was there was that thing studs as well years ago. Can't do it. it. Soccer can't be filmed in a way that's credible. It j simply can't be done. Versus rugby, rugby's yeah. easier. I was part of the wasn't that wasn't the only reason why I chose rugby. I went to a rugby playing school, so obviously that was the story. And uh, also, I will say rugby is the most homoerotic sport on earth. Yeah, um, rugby is more homoerotic than gay sex. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I think as well, soccer can't be filmed credibly. I used to play a game for like 20 years with a bunch of actors uh, and writers and poets and playwrights. Yeah. Um, great people, Michael West. and I've started playing that game the odd time now. Yeah. yeah I, 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 when I played it, I was in my early 20s up until 40 and we played every Sunday. It was great. Uh, Lenny Abrahamson used to play a bit and Stephen Rennox, who's a great composer. Um, but the guy who got me into it, who's a good friend, is David Wilmot and he's a, such a great actor and such a great football player. And, uh, and I saw, uh, you know, he played a footballer in football films that, that and, and the football action hasn't convinced. And that tells you everything. Yeah. Because, you know, to look good as a football player, you have to be a football, you have to be a professional football player. Yeah. And the gulf between being a really good amateur and a professional is pretty great. It makes you realise what you're watching. You don't, you don't know. know how good they are. I know. You know, it's kind of frightening. I have a friend who plays, um, he just, he just got his first, uh, he, did, he didn't come on. He made the Ireland squad for the first time. He's 23 or mm. 24 uh, and he plays for Blackburn. Mm. Um, so they'll probably come up from League One this year. But like we always say that like because I would have played with him like the whole way up like on school soccer teams and like he was always really good. Mm. But like, you know, you were playing in the same team. So like on some level there were, you felt parity even though like he was always much better than the rest of us. But, um, but like it's amazing like how good he must be now. And even when, like it was so funny because he, he left school at... 17 and he, he did his juniors or sorry he did his leaving start but he kind of did it over there yeah. um, and when he came back like he was genuinely about four inches taller like I mean he, he obviously just took the growth spread at the right time and like but just the size of him and like as, on top of all the, the physical capabilities that like now he must have like on yeah. a, it's just it's kind of, and it's such a mad it's such a mad lifestyle because you know he, he's been injured for like six months and you're like what what do you do I know I know people who've played like charity stuff with uh, 
you know, obviously ex-Irish players like Richie Sadlier and Kevin Kilban and stuff, and they say that it's just another level. Like, they just hit the ball to them, and it's just the the level of awareness and control and what they're doing is just, it's beyond, you know, what we're up to. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> bonkers, but yeah, it, it's good. So, uh, but we will move on, but Liverpool or Spurs to finish ahead of each other, who will take third and fourth? Oh, Liverpool will, will be way ahead of Spurs. You think so? Oh, yeah. Okay, I think I'm inclined to disagree with you in that one. That's okay. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give you. I'll give you a shout in gloating glory in on the 15th of May. Mm, no, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go. Number 26. Do you have it? No. No worries. This no. is uh, a fix. <laughs> Just want to put that on the record. Yeah. Well, um, you are entitled to your wrong opinion. <laughs> uh, what is your most treasured relationship with someone over the age of 65? Well, that's my parents who are both alive uh, and I'm very lucky in that regard. Yeah, my parents are fantastic and I'm good friends with them both and uh, yeah, they've been fantastic support to me down the years uh, and I don't know if uh, everybody I know is as lucky as I am in that regard but I really do get on very well with them. So mm. um, yeah, it's them with the bullet really, you know. Uh, it's funny how uh, you kind of think of that age as being so remote when you're young but it isn't really and people don't become not people after a certain point in their lives but yeah it's them Mm. what's it like when you get your first film made and you get to tell them that because they obviously know that's what you've been working towards I assume for your whole life really yeah like uh, you know it's great Uh, they're they're big supporters of my career and they've been at you know cast and crew screenings and premieres and so on and they've got to share that which is always amazing uh uh, and you know I write uh, like I, I wrote a novel that was semi-autobiographical and I do tend to write in that vein quite a bit so you know there is an a, a aspect of exposure in what I do uh, and I think that's always interesting for them to encounter but it, I, I, I think it helps them get to know me better uh, in a way and it's funny like it's kind of you know Irish people and I include myself in this are reserved in, in a emotionally uh, can be I don't know if that's a unfair generalisation and so when you write something out of you it's it becomes uh, public in a way that perhaps you don't always have the courage to express face to face you know mm. and uh, I, I think that's an interesting um, like an unexpected advantage in terms of building and maintaining relationships with people you love because you get to talk to them in different ways you know um, you know, not directly. It wouldn't be in your head while you're creating something, but if you're kind of truthful in your writing, mm. then that will undoubtedly occur. You know, and uh, especially if you've gone through stuff like and lived abroad, and there's been large tracts of your adult life where you haven't been available to 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 people, or or haven't been kind of uh, mature enough to share what's going on in your life. Then it can always be an interesting revelation further down the line. You know. Mm. And that's, I think, where being some kind of artist maybe intersects with your personal life. Mm. You're always talking to people, you know, even when you're, even when you're not in dialogue with them directly. And uh, like, is that a, is that ever a frustration because you make that that kind of work, as you said, that like is on that border of like, you know, the semi autobiographical thing? Is it ever a frustration, or do you ever feel like people take you less seriously as a writer because they're like, well, he's not really writing; he's just like filming his, you know, uh, um, mm. like a, a reincarnation of his life or mm. something. Yeah, but I think at the same time as well, there's great mischief in that because you're what you're trying to do in a way is write with such emotional honesty that people think it is it, people. Uh, okay, so there's two things you write with such a honesty that people think it's you and it isn't. Mm. You, you know, yeah, a, a, and that's why working in fiction is so wonderful because you're kind of also writing um, something that is you and people assume it isn't. You know, yeah. So both are in play, and and uh, the tension between those is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like when you, when you, you know, just uh, in a crude attempt to relate, it's like with the you know the play we're doing now, lyrics. It, it's a two hander, and it's a it's a it's a guy and a girl in it, and it, it's really interesting because you know, especially when you're a writer actor like I am, like there's there's that thing because I was asking from a selfish place really of like I can relate because I probably I like to I think. The, uh, what your work to me straddles really nicely is like that comedy drama line mm. which I really like to write in as well I just find it mm. just find it true to life you know that yeah. way of like you see a drama and there's no there's literally not a laugh in it and you're like gosh that doesn't feel like very real to yeah, me yeah absolutely you know and mm. same with comedies and you're like well there's that's just 
that's just laughs and yeah. you know yeah it, it just it doesn't it's not for me sure um and but it, it's interesting then because you're like so when you're you've written a character for yourself and then you've written a character for for someone else and we're really lucky to have like an incredible incredible actress do this play with me at the moment mm. her name's Danielle Galligan and she's mm-hmm. just out of this world good but it's so right. funny because her character feels in, in lots of ways more like me do you, do you know what I mean mm-hmm. which is so inter- or like there's still loads of like myself in yeah. that character and mm. it, it, it it's really I don't know it, it's really have you and have you had the experience then of like you said like of so for example someone sees Handsome Devil and someone from school days or like who would have known you from like you know that time in your life from when that was inspired from like reaches out and, and uh, I, I don't know it offered them another um, perspective on who you were then and what you might have been going through then yeah, I got lots of nice uh, emails from people who are uh, went to school or, or when I did um, when Handsome Devil came out so yeah no I, I it, it definitely struck a chord there and it, you know it's interesting because you're you're actually just writing about kind of there's a, it, those characters are a, a, an amalgamation of maybe perhaps some people that I know and and then myself and then they're n- then just uh, creation. So, uh, but you let it do whatever it does and let people think of it however they want. You mm. know, uh, I remember when my novel was published. I think a number of people thought that they were being represented or thought that they knew who other characters were yeah. and were, they were frequently wrong about it you know but it's it's not uh, it's not really your job to kind of uh, say yes or no in that regard it's whatever people would like it to be it is mm. you know and that's the kind of great thing about writing fiction as opposed to memoir and I've written memoir as well where you're really just very clearly uh, you're owing it to yourself and the people who read it to be truthful but uh, there's less mischief in that and, mm. and there's less um there's less scope to play with that idea of what people think and don't think about yeah. what occurred, you know. And do you have that, um, in terms of your writing, do you have, are you disciplined about it in like a, you know, over the course of a year, like are you someone who will get up early and do like morning pages or, or like will write every day or this kind of thing? Yeah, not really. Like, oh, yes, I mean, I write a lot and I'm a hard worker, but I don't have a a strict routine. I'm not great in, the, well, hang on, let me see what I do. Because obviously there's periods now, like I'm in edit, so for the next four or five months, the, you know, it'll be different. But I'm trying to remember in the in the in the moments when I'm not doing that type of thing, I do write every day, mm-hmm. every weekday, and uh, yeah, I do go. I sit at my desk during the day. Uh, but I don't always. I don't attach a word count to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, you're usually motivated by various deadlines that exist. If you're developing something, then you have to get pages away, and and that's usually motivated in turn by the need to get at the money. Mm. Uh, so that can drive you. Uh, I'm always working on a couple of different things at a time. So no, there isn't a strict routine, and I think maybe that pertains more to fiction writers, you know, uh, novelists and so on that I know uh, seem to have that type of routine where they get up every day at around the same time they and there's a, a word count that they try to get through and and they're also trying to I suppose maybe d- connect more directly to something that is you know more purely creative and imaginative in a way because I'm as a, as a writer of film and TV stuff you're usually writing into an idea that exists and into a structure that exists or some kind of thing that exists and that you're trying to fill in and it's not really it's not a blank page in the pure sense. Yeah. So it's different. It's more of a craft. Um, and I will say that I think that's something that should be acknowledged more clearly by people who work in film and TV in this country. Very often th- there's this idea that well, we're, we're, we're a nation of storytellers. So why aren't we, uh, why don't we punch above our weight in film and TV more, that we do, more than we do? And I think we do great in that area, I will say. But mm. also I think film and TV writing is a craft, you know, and and as such, there are aspects of it that are teachable and learnable, you know. Whereas I think our great pedigree in literature and, and in fiction is because we're massively imaginative people and those art forms are untethered from structure, you know. Mm. Um, I hesitate to use the word pure, but there is something more essentially just imaginative about them, you know. Mm. So, so yeah, I think your writing routine would differ if you're, like and I've written a novel and I wrote it, I wrote that with a much more rigid day-to-day structure that was like a thousand words a day and mm. trying to get trying to get it done you know so uh trying to get a block of something that could then be uh, played around with but uh yeah 
I think greater respect has to be given to the the novelist who gets up and looks at the blank page at eight in the morning and and and, and writes uh, in that manner. You know, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is it when like when you're writing now? Obviously, <coughs> you know, with the success that like for example, Handsome Devil had. Like, are, are you in a place where if you're writing something, you will write with uh, an actor in mind, especially for something that you want to write no. and direct? No, no, I don't do that. Mm. I, I don't do that, and I don't do that because it just—I wouldn't be able to assume any actor would do it. Yeah. Uh, but also, I don't do it because why don't I do that? Because I don't—I don't see it, it that way, actually. And I never become too fixated upon the getting of one person versus the getting of another. Um, no, I just write, try and write uh, characters that exist. And sometimes you cast somebody who's totally different in a way to perhaps even how you wrote it and, and it can come to life. I think it's better, if, if possible, to be a little looser in that regard. Mm. Um, you know the way you read these interviews with uh, film directors or years after the fact you you come to understand that it was something was written with a different actor in mind and you put your head on it and you go, God, yeah, that could have worked just as well that way. Yeah. They have to exist as characters in their own right, don't they? And, then, and that also applies to when you cast an actor, you have to allow them to bring... You know, it's like we were talking earlier about the words and the snagging of the words. Like, the actors have to be allowed to bring whatever makes them feel the realist mm. in relation to the character. Yeah. So, like, if I have this idea about how a uh, an actor speaks, a character speaks, and then an actor comes on board who's not moving in that way, you have to kind of acknowledge the push and pull of that and mm. let it be what it is, mm. you know. Matt Bomer is in uh, Papichulo, the film I've just made, and he's an actor who does an extraordinary amount of work <clears throat> in terms of you know research but also just in preparation and so is very much like almost off book by the time you're in rehearsal and you know is really and that's really interesting to work with because they they bring things to it and he's obviously hugely collaborative and it was a great experience but they bring things to it that are different to how you imagine but they're so real that it works just as well you mm. know um so it's always different and, and that's kind of great that's the best thing about it yeah, it's so funny you say that because like the oh, example when you said you know of you know I in hindsight you hear of somebody's meant to do it is uh, like once um, and Killian Murphy I think was meant to mm. do the the job and, and something right. came up and he couldn't do it mm. and you know then obviously Glenn Hansard mm. did it and like but like because that's a, like that's obviously an Irish movie that won an Oscar like you know for best song yeah but like like there's a probably a pretty good chance that mightn't have happened if it had been the other way around you know yeah it's so interesting and like how that. Uh, I'm a really big Glenn Hansard fan. Yeah. So like, but how that like has changed like his career. I mean, like, it, it's just it's just really fascinating. Like mm. how it, 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 there's a, I, Kim Murphy is an incredible actor, and I just seen him in that grief is the thing with feathers. Yeah. It's kind of beautiful. Kind of reminds me of Ghost Story actually yeah. a little bit. Um, it's a great book. Yeah, yeah. He's mm. in, he's really amazing in it. So he's like absolutely incredible. But there's such a charm about like Glenn Hansard and Marquette Glover in that movie, and you're like, I wonder would that have. Like, because it, it just inevitably would have been really different if Killian Murphy did it. It would, and and maybe he would have won an Oscar for actor. Yeah, like oh, that's not to say Glenn's acting isn't wonderful as well. You just don't know. Uh, but I think it's helpful always to imagine the positive alternative in that regard, and just go, well, it would have been brilliant in a different way, or yeah, you know, um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 never going to be exactly what you thought, and it's never going to be. Um, it's never you, you never know what the alternative would have been like mm. it's such a it's such a ephemeral and kind of magical thing that's happening when you're making a film like you're trying to do something and you're clear in your mind about what you're trying to do but you're not getting exactly what you thought and so you get into the edit and you're looking at this stuff and you're like there's m amazing and interesting stuff here but it's, it's definitely not exactly as i wrote it mm. and then you're f and then the courage is about trying to take it in whatever direction it's asking to be rather than returning it to what the script was. Yes. Acknowledging that you have to move forward and kind of go, what is this What is this footage asking to be? Like, it's interesting, and it's early days, I probably shouldn't be talking about it too much, but like, uh, part of the process I have when I write something is to have a Spotify playlist that pertains to the character or the story in some way. So, like, for Papichulo, I had, like, 70 songs that would, be, would have been listened to, and I would have sent those to Matt and other people and... They would have been around the film, and then you get into the edit, and you're just it, the the film itself is like can become resistant to putting any music in it, mm. or to having those songs or a song in a particular scene that you thought would work. And the stuff, the footage itself tells you like what will and won't work, mm. and and you have to just you know you have to go with that, and that will bring you to somewhere else, and 
and then you have to just kind of not worry that it's not going to be exactly as it was but just kind of go forward and go what what new thing is this you know yeah i love that yeah and i mean that because i always think that's an interesting thing with like tv because you're, you're given the opportunity if you have a second series to like see where where that's gonna mm. where that's gonna go i mean is that something is, is tv like an episodic tv is that something that you would have an interest in yeah i, I have a, I've, i will be honest and, and say that i have a really tricky time figuring out how to do this how to do what i want to do because i've been offered episodic tv to direct and i, I just don't know whether i can be in the chair and do that without wanting involvement in some other way i'm not sure i might end up doing it down the line mm. i also love endings as i said to you and i think the impulse with television to keep the ball in the air to find a way to resist endings obviously that's a returnable sustainable material is what tv thrives on um and thus far i haven't uh been inclined to write in that way um so those two factors have kept me away from doing uh it, but I have a few projects that might uh, happen that are in that area and it'll be interesting to try something different you know but uh, I, I, some of the TV I love is um, I, lo I love series that run for seven or eight or nine with great writing and so on um, and they have endings in there you know they're obviously natural arcs that land and provide what I'm suggesting maybe isn't always the, the case but like the impulse to keep the ball in the air I always, I always despised with every fibre of my being shows like Lost, mm. where you're being asked to believe that somebody is in control of this narrative and then you're dumped at the end. I didn't even get to the end, but I don't think I watched the beginning either. But you're, you're, you're being asked to assume that this is going to wrap up in some way and then it just the end it doesn't. And you're just like, well, why are we alive? You know, <laughs> I do feel like the ending, the the idea of the ending is a, is a, is a primal thing. You know, people... you. You know, you're a theatre actor and um, mm. you go into a darkened room and the lights go down and it gets you. It's a magic trick. It shouldn't because it's people pretending on a stage. P people, grown-ups are wearing clothes that aren't theirs pretending to be other people. Yeah. And for the first few minutes, you're like, this is absurd and childish. Yes. And then something happens and at the end, you've been done. And uh, And there's something primal about that, that idea of, it's almost like it answers each successful play or film in the cinema answers that question where do we go when we die like it does it in a way that's subatomic you know you just come to understand it I read a piece in the paper the other day some scientific research concluded that at plays in the theatre and, and, and I have to assume it's the same in film that the audience's heartbeats can synchronise mm. and that's kind of uh, I think that's f fascinating because I think it's it's providing something that isn't you know uh, literal it's providing some kind of elemental kind of comfort in a way mm. and I love that and I, I just don't get that from the ball in the air mentality of television that it, it, everything has to be kept moving and kept going you know yeah but that said I love TV as well so I don't know uh, uh, I have to figure that out yeah uh, but at the moment I'm happy doing films it's something that came up twice so I was just curious like you said like in that way it answered like what happens like when we die like do you like is that something that's on your mind at the moment or like do you have thoughts about it always always like it's it's uh there isn't anything more interesting mm. and unknowable you know so i think uh yeah now i'm not writing endings because i want to answer that i'm just writing endings because i like them mm. but i like them because i think it's a way of it's asserting some kind of order maybe uh but i think it's a it's an amazing question to approach sideways you know creatively to have that in your head you know i think uh i like those stories that, that that acknowledge the the kind of futility of our existence and the idea that we're all just dumb animals like you know which speaks to the comic instinct in storytelling i think but then similarly you can approach the idea of of uh, death and, and and you know that existential idea in 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 a in a dramatic uh, arena. And this is why I love comedy drama because I think you're you're pushing at the same thing with two different tools, you know, and you're trying to resolve a couple of uh, two different tones that might seem to contradict each other, mm. but they don't. They they actually they drive you into the place where you feel most alive, which is like laughing at a funeral. You know, you 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 feel alive at that point, and it's a much more 
the comedy drama form when it's executed in the right way is just the purest uh, expression of what it is to be alive I think mm. you know and so the people that I love do it the best you know I, I'm a big Billy Wilder fan as I mentioned uh, you know Alexander Payne is, is, a, is a big one for me and and, and I think uh, in all art forms I'm into that mm. you know uh, so yeah no I'm always thinking about death aren't you? <laughs> no no well kind of I, like I know it's just but like in that in that way of like we were talking about like um, the ghosts and stuff and I know it's a word that people can take issue with but like in terms of like spirituality and that kind of thing mm. like did, um, you know like do you have like do you have a faith uh, Alan Partridge said it best he said God is a gas but not like calor gas <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm into that uh, yeah, yeah, I, so yeah. I don't suppose I have religious faith but I think there's something yeah so I don't know if that's contradictory but uh, no, no 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 I'm not religious at all yeah um, having been raised Catholic I'm not religious at all yeah <laughs> do, like do, do you find that like especially I lived in Chicago for a year and I like remember really distinctly coming home um, for the first time and uh, and I was still living like with my parents at the time mm. and um and like walking through, you know, from a small little village and like relatively rural, and just being like, oh fuck, like my just my shoulders are that bit tighter, and like I was like, oh, is this is this like um like it, there is something when you came back, I was like, oh fuck, it does actually feel a little bit more oppressive here, like and maybe it's just because you know you have all that stuff of like, well, this is where I grew up, and like mm. you know all the the good stuff happened, all the bad stuff happened, and um, but like you know there there like there is there is a real freedom I found like you know in America. Mm versus like I, I don't want to make it sound like fucking I sound like Sir Sharon in that um that that film. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like in Brooklyn. Uh, mm. but like do you do you associate like uh, a Catholic upbringing with those like with um I don't know like a feeling of oppressiveness or like guilt or that kind of stuff that we hear about all the time? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, there I don't think there's any other way to interpret it. Like you are you are the 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 concept of original sin is the core tenet of uh, of that faith, and it's a uh, obviously it's a uh, well I think obviously it's such a load of bullshit, yeah, and it's such an oppressive idea to give to a newborn child that they're already in some way flawed, and that the the process of their lives is in trying to atone for that, not yeah. just call a ton of bullshit on it. So if you were, but I'm fascinated by emigration, and that's really interesting mm. to say, and I think that's not about the Catholic experience so much as uh, what you know wherever your home place is when you grow up and you go away I think I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea that you become aware of who you are when you're removed from the context because you don't have around you you don't have the things that define you in the same way so you you are able to see or feel exactly who you are mm. because you're out of you're decontextualized you know mm. and, and I think that then the tension of returning home and and being back in that place is uh, is fa is fascinating because you, you, you know uh, obviously you think you've become a different person, but home reminds you of the things that you that haven't changed and the ways in which you're the same. And as a writer uh, uh, or just as a person having lived abroad for so long, I, I'm consumed by that. I love it. It's mm. it's amazing. Um, nobody is more Irish than the the guy in the bar in America, you know. Yeah. And, and and it's uh, it, it's 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 really interesting to push around I think and what's the thing that makes you come back all, all the time like what's the thing that makes you keep Ireland as your home do you know what I mean I just love it here I absolutely love it um, I lived away from my 20s and much of my 30s uh, but I, I love Ireland uh, so deeply uh, my family are here um, but I just I love Dublin uh, I love the the people and the I think it feels like an incredibly creative place mm. um, I didn't love it uh, 10 or 15 years ago but I love it uh, ever since then and love growing up here too so yeah I have a really strong attachment to here you know I've always felt the pull of, of home and I've always wanted to kind of spend as much time here as I can in a way uh, obviously it's a complicated place and you know there are issues here that are so like the homelessness and you know there's so there's great difficulties associated with living here but uh, it's it's an amazing place mm. what was it the switch that happened 10 or 15 years ago for you when the when the money was here it was just gross it was absolutely horrible okay. I, I thought this, I'm perhaps just talking about Dublin maybe mm. but I just thought it was a, a horrendous place to be mm. back then like 2000 and whenever it was like 5 or 6 or 7 mm. I hated it and 
ended up leaving again for a couple of years. I didn't enjoy uh, life in Ireland at that point. I, I just thought we, well, I, I shouldn't say we, but I, I felt like there was a disconnection from what we had about ourselves that was uh, most appealing back then. Mm. I think it's back now. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's like all relationships, I suppose it changes as the years go on, you know? Yeah. I couldn't wait to leave when I left college. I couldn't get out of here quick enough. Yeah. But then you look back and you kind of realise that that was as much about you as it was about the place. So mm. yeah. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Let's give it another couple of rolls. All right, cool. Uh, number 29. Do you have it? No. No worries. Uh, number 29. Um, where, where are we? Sorry. Yes, yeah, sir. Do you have any unusual fascina- fascinations? Fascinations. Um. That's a oh god! I don't know. Do I? Can I modify the question? Yeah, please do. Is there anything in your writing that you find that, that comes up again and again, and you're like, "Why? Why, why am I? Why am I fascinated yeah. by this?" Yeah, no, definitely. And um, that's uh, that, thank you for that modification. That's all right. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated with male friendship. Interesting. Yeah, uh, that is. You, it's only when you go deeper into your career and, you, and there's a bit of work behind you that you realise what comes up that you're writing into subconsciously. Mm. I'm fascinated by the healing power of platonic male friendship and uh, the tension between that and romantic love between men as well so mm. I'm just fascinated in male friendship I think generally speaking that has become a recurring theme in my life and uh, in my creative life and I have great um, male friends so it's interesting uh, but yeah that definitely is something that I tend to uh, go towards as a writer over and over again it's really funny I like to think about this all the time because like like my relationship I think with like my own like masculinity or whatever way you want to frame it and just with, with the people around me it's so fascinating like for example at the play last night I have a friend and he's a he's um you know very sporty like really a, a, a top level sports person like uh, and you know would not be involved in theatre but I really appreciate him coming because I think it's always interesting when you have someone you know inevitably it's a lot of like your actor and director and writer friends will come and see your mm. your stuff because it's in their interest but it, you know it was an outside thing but it is very interesting like interacting and, and maybe it is that thing of like you know uh, I'm sure you're the same like a lot of like my friends in, in town are like actors and writers and quite liberal and mm. quite um I don't know quite like self-aware I would say and like emotionally in touch and stuff and it is really funny when you again going home and you know seeing how you interact with like your old friends and just the even you know the handshake versus the hug mm-hmm. or, or, or that kind of yeah. thing and trying to trying to navigate like it like I actually feel much more comfortable with women. I mean, most of my close friendships would be with women because I, I think I, I probably come from that like, mm. uh, yeah, more like. There's something like I just find able to check in like emotionally more. Yeah. With I'm, I'm generalizing a big time, yeah. but it it's so it's so fascinating that thing. I think especially like, I think again versus like America. That's because that's my only experience of being away. But like, there's a real different type of masculinity there. I found mm. with with guys. You know, it's a really, really fascinating thing. Yeah, it is. Like the idea of like uh, male fr- male friends mean so much to other men because that friendship doesn't allow emotional intimacy. That is the uh, I think is the kind of paradox at the heart of it that makes it interesting. That they're ch- cherished so much by other men because it doesn't ask for emotional intimacy. Mm. So you're actually cherishing an absence uh, of emotional depth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then if you push at that, it's kind of fascinating to me, like the idea of where that goes and what's at the heart of it, you know? like, um, So, you know, I, I just, I've always been interested in that. And uh, it's just, uh, it seems to pop up over and over again. You get to the end of something and you're like, oh, I wrote about it again. Again, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the funny thing when you're writing, you're like, it sometimes takes me a long time to realise, oh wait, that's what I'm writing about. Like you're yeah. writing about, you know, your, your story and your thing, and you're like, oh yeah, but it's about this. Yeah. Y- you know, it's yeah. really funny. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really yeah. funny that happens. Right, let's give another spin. I think this is our last. Oh, we got two. All right, we'll do two. We'll do two quickly. Great. Uh, number 39, do you have it? No. Number 39. Uh, what is your relationship to social media? <coughs> I don't think I can say it any better than that. <laughs> I just deleted my Facebook account uh, recently, so that's that taken care of. Um, I have a Twitter account, which I don't use that much anymore. I used to love it much more. Twitter used to be a joke machine. Mm. Uh, I used to love that. Uh, 
and actually I've made great friends on Twitter. My good friend Dave Holmes I met on Twitter uh, initially uh, and various other people. Um, so it used to be fantastic and now it is a toxic cesspit. Um, so I don't use it so much anymore, like it's not on my phone. Uh, uh, and uh, I like Instagram because mm. you can write slightly longer things there and it's also picture-based and it seems to be friendlier. Uh, and I don't think you're obliged to follow people in the same way. And I also think people can, you can just go in and look at pictures on a theme and so on. So I think Instagram is interesting, but it's owned by Facebook, which I mean, which I know will mean I'll have to delete it eventually. Right. Um, so I have a complicated relationship with social media. I was a reasonably early adopter, uh, but, uh, I think its value to me is, is draining away slightly. Mm. So I use it as a tool definitely for letting people know about the film stuff and yeah. I understand how that isn't perhaps the most um, wholesome way to use it but uh, yeah it's a complicated relationship uh, I think its value overall it feels to me to be decreasing slightly yeah. certainly to me it is anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. cool right Let's okay last one we have number 49 do you have it? no <laughs> You could have lied. I mean, I could have lied. <laughs> Why am I so honest? Yeah, yeah. I have it. <laughs> I've had every number, in fact. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, this is kind of a nice way to end it. Uh, when was the last time you wrote a letter? I wrote a letter to a wonderful actress called Darcy Carden, who is in Papi Chulo. Okay. I wrote her a letter. Uh, do you mean a letter versus an email? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay. That's not the answer then. Isn't, isn't it so funny though? Wait, but it is a letter. Well, yeah, keep going because I'm interested now. I, I, just because we cast her and I, I wanted to let her know what I was thinking, so I wrote it in, a, in an email. But that's actually an email, it's not a letter, so yeah. scratch that. Yeah. No. When is the last time I wrote a letter? Uh, as opposed to a card? Yeah, a card is okay. Can you, are you starting to get a sense of what an unbearable pedant I am? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, please clarify exactly what you mean by letter. Like, why don't I just answer the? Yeah, I mean, like, a, like a, a blank. What's wrong piece, with me? piece of paper, maybe with lines on it? Like, you know what I mean? So is that a handwritten letter? Yeah, handwritten letter. <laughs> it's probably. I don't know when the last time I wrote a letter was. Uh, I literally couldn't tell you. Yeah. I came out by letter. No, I didn't. I was an email. Shitting hell. I don't have an answer for you. Yeah, gas. We've written loads of good emails. Wait, what? No, hang on. I wrote a letter. I, I, I'll tell you the last time I wrote a letter. It was to some institution where they fucking needed a confirmation by letter or something. Oh. You know, you have to very so, every so often, yeah, yeah, like yeah. some bank or utility company, yeah. I have to cancel something. And they're like, no, only a letter will do. And you're like, a letter? Really, a letter? Yeah. Um, that was the last time I wrote a letter. Oh, and it was probably a really spiteful, like I probably wrote it on the back of... A bill, yeah, from their company, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, in really blood. mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some guy got it in the office, and they're like, and I had to, kind of, had to get that and understand how little I thought of them, yeah, which is got, yeah. So he then would have resigned, yeah, and gone traveling for a year. <laughs> I mean, so you gave him a and gift. Now he lives in the Philippines. Yeah, so you had a lot to thank you for. Dive school. <laughs> what about what about your coming out email? You said this, did that by email? Yeah, that was email. That was years ago, mm. but in the time of email. And who did it? Like, who did you send it to? Your well, folks? It was from my family. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's not a letter. Mm. And actually, it doesn't count. Yeah. And you're right to ask that question about letter versus email because it it has a different weight. It does, doesn't it? It like, does for sure. I mean, I think, uh, which is an interesting thing. Like, email is amazing, and it is definitely my preferred form of communication. You know, but uh, letters are different. And I think if I got a letter. I think I would feel differently about the weight of it. I'd be like, "Oh, this means something." Yeah, you know it, what I mean. It's funny when you you get one, and it, I, I I've got very like rarely, and but you're right. It's always like if <laughs> shit's going down, or like someone needs to like really express something. Like my mom's good at it. My mom will will used to used to communicate by letters a lot. Really, when we were kids, yeah, yeah, big time. But like it was normally bad. You're normally in like it could be you're in trouble. You know, yeah. sometimes not, and and other times no. But like it just has a has a weight to it. Yeah, I found letters in the past that were sent to me when I was in my 20s and when I was living in San Francisco, uh, there was a, that was the time of letters, although I had an email around then but, mm. uh, or starting to get email around then. But yeah, there's a lot, I've had kind of letters and letters from friends as well, which is kind of mad when you think about it now. Mm. You know, I know. Hello, how are you? On Wednesday I did X. You know, like that's, it seems like unbelievably archaic now, you yeah. know. Or at the Gale Talk, that's when you used to write letters. Yeah. I did like Irish college or whatever. And that was I mean, it was fun. Like, where did you go to Irish college? Uh, I did one year. I went like I loved it. Like, yeah, I did, me too. I did four or 
four years, I think. I did one year in uh, Donegal, a place called Maharauti. Yeah. And that was my first year. It was a beautiful place. It was really stunning. Uh, and then three years in Kalashi Yosef in Connemara. Oh, yeah, very good. Um, which was great. I loved it. I went to Inishir. Inishir. In Iron Islands, yeah. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. There was only, I don't know how many people lived there now, but it was, I think, 300 people there then. Wow. And so you just had the run of the island. There was that castle, the ruins, and the pier you could swim off and... You you know just you had the whole island to your, yeah. to play around in it was fantastic like I'd love that as an adult now you know what I mean like you know they do that festival down there in in this year every summer a music festival uh, run by uh, it's called Drop Everything or it used to be called Drop Everything and I haven't been but I saw photos and stuff about it and it looks amazing yeah yeah it's fantastic really part of the world yeah um, Alejandro who is plays is the co lead in Papi Chulo uh, yeah. is coming to Ireland in a couple of weeks and I was thinking of pointing them down that direction absolutely you know yeah they're, wildness. they're so beautiful yeah, it's a very special place mm. um, John uh, you failed epically at personality bingo but thanks so much I for got one it. number you got one one out of six I mean it is kind of terrible it's not great <laughs> it's a failing number yeah but thanks so much for doing it you're most welcome um, really appreciate it is there any I, I just asked you about social media sometimes people like to plug social media or I mean Papi Chulo is going to hopefully be with us next year or yeah I think well maybe next year yeah that would be great if it, if it is I'm on Twitter at Mr John Butler so that's where all my uh, relentless uh, publicity for that film will be if you're feeling uh, inclined but uh, yeah maybe the end of this year maybe early next year sweet John thanks so much for doing it so guys that was John Butler playing personality bingo with Tom Moore and John a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it uh, you're such a gentleman and um, such a engaging thoughtful and funny person it was really really uh, wonderful to sit down uh, and chat to you especially uh, as I said because I am such such a big fan uh, of his work and um, really speaks to me and I think it's uh, kind of spoken to the nation and beyond uh, as we saw with like the success of Handsome Devil and the Stag before it like it, it's really really amazing what he's doing and uh, I feel like just chatting to John even like it sounds like there's ideas in the pipeline and um, anything that he does I will uh, watch and I'm sure be a fan of because I think uh, he really Great. Um, so, as I said, thank you for taking the time to do it. Guys, in other news, come and check out Lyrics. As I said, this is our last week of the show. Um, we're on at 7 o'clock every night at the Theatre Upstairs in Eden Key. It's just above Lanigan's pub. Um, it is uh, couldn't be closer to O'Connell Bridge. It's uh, so such a central, probably the most central venue in the whole city. Um, and we would love to have you there. I'm really, really proud of the play. I'm proud of um, what you know I've written with it. And I'm proud of like the work we're doing on stage. I'm so delighted to get to act with Daniel Gallagher because she's an absolute rock star and if there's anyone listening who's in a position to um, you know put people in plays everyone should have Danielle Gallagher in, in every play because she's just so good um, and such a, a, a friend now and I really do love her I, I, I couldn't speak highly enough of her and of course uh, my wonderful friend and collaborator Amanda Testaseca uh, it is always uh, a joy to get to, to work with her because we work so well together and um, I think the world of her so it's been so amazing to have the opportunity to do that and I'd love for you guys to see it so as I said look come in and see us we're on for the rest of this week um, Monday through Saturday and then we're done um, you know, I'd love to bring this show back down the line but you just never know um, with this kind of stuff so um, don't bank on that come and see us now uh, we would love to have you um, and yeah lyrics is running so um, come and see us uh, guys as always thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast it's so lovely to have you uh, a massive thank you uh, to the boss woman Erin Lindsay for mixing editing and producing uh, this podcast thank you so much Erin also a huge thank you to Paddy Allen at Headstuff for having us on board and always uh, a massive thank you to Connor Nolan um, for the wonderful artwork and Liam Moore and Anthony Manley for the deadly theme music guys Tune back in next week when Aaron Monaghan plays Personality Bingo with Tom Moore.